Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders, innovators, and strategists who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Janet Cavandi, a veteran astronaut and president of Sierra Space. On today's episode, she'll discuss the company's Dream Chaser space plane, launching in 2023 that will fly cargo supply missions for NASA to the International Space Station. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Dr. Gavandi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here because space is cool and it's inspiring. People get a lot of inspiration from space and you are one of those individuals you would sit there growing up in Missouri, look at the stars with your father dreaming out one day going up into space. You've been to space three times. What was that moment like when you realized your dream? So, uh, yeah, I was just actually writing this down uh, a couple of days ago to get my my thoughts around it, refresh my memories. But it it was my first launch on STS ninety one, and um, you're sitting there on the launch pad, and you know it's not uncommon to have launches scrub, so you don't want to get too excited just in case uh, you don't go that day. But when you're sitting there and then they start the countdown and you realize that you're actually going to fly into space and all of your dreams are about to be made, you know, to come true, that's when it becomes real. So as soon as the engines start and you feel the vibration and you feel this thing called the twang where the rocket pitches forward just a little bit and as soon as it's upright, the solid rockers, uh, solid rocket motors ignited, and you are really thrust off uh, off the ground. I was so moved by that, just not by fear, but the emotions just flowed, and and the tears started running out of my eyes, and 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 since you're on your back, they they ran down and they ran right into my ears, <laughs> and I <laughs> was so um, excited. I didn't care that they were my. I just was so happy to actually be going to space to see what the earth looked like to you know make those um dreams from so long ago come true it was just a fabulous experience what was the moment like when you crossed and it got dark and was it like okay this is very real now yeah so i was actually on my first flight i was a rookie i and uh rookies get to ride on the bottom deck on their first flight so i was downstairs and my job was to uh, unstrap after the solid rocket motors uh, came off the main engines cut off and the orange tank separated we unstrapped and i floated up to take pictures of the orange tank and so i floated up my first chance at weightlessness so cool floated over to get the camera out of the the cabinet and then i looked up and the commander said, welcome to space. And I looked behind his head and there was Earth for the first time. And it looked just like a big IMAX movie. You know, it was so amazing. And I, you know, you almost want to pinch yourself like, am I really here or is that a movie? But I'm floating, so I must really be in space. So such an incredible thing to see something for the first time that you've only seen in movies or pictures. Kind of like when you go travel abroad and you see the Eiffel Tower for the first time or the pyramids or something like that. You know, it's it's real to you at that moment. I don't know. It's just it's indescribable. The pyramids are interesting. I visited the pyramids years ago and when you go to Giza and you see the you have no idea how big they are. And when you go inside the pyramids or in Giza or Memphis, the engineering that went into that were you thinking about from a technological standpoint how that you're here looking down on Earth from an engineering technical perspective, how we were able to achieve this? 
Always, you're right. Um, you know, the Great Wall of China, the the pyramids. I, I had uh, one of my favorite pictures that I took from space was of the pyramids. Uh, took a very large lens, and it you can't really see it with the naked eye, but with the the big lens you can. And so I got all the pyramids in one photo, and then I had the the honor to meet the then rulers of Egypt and present the that image to them. And I thought. That's pretty cool, you know, to be able to come back to Earth, take a picture that you can only take from space and provide it to the ruler of a country that has such an amazing history. And and that engineering that, you know, went into building those pyramids at the time was equivalent to the engineering that it took to to fly us to space that day. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of it just really makes you think about all the things humanity has done, achieved and what inspiration it you know, it provides to the next generation to not put a limit on what can be done. That's a really wonderful way to put it into perspective because anything is possible. We just have to have the can-do attitude, and we're seeing that now. We saw that with NASA where you spent a long time. We're seeing that in the private sector of space is is booming. Are we going through the great revitalization of space now where the private sector is stepping in and we're eventually going to expand the space economy? I absolutely think that's where we are. So we are just at the brink of a a whole new chapter of human evolution and history. I think, you know, I often refer to it as a similar time when we were just starting to cross the oceans, right? And and didn't know what would be on the other side. You know, Columbus thought it would be India. Didn't realize until he ran into some land that it wasn't. But just that perseverance for people to convince others that it's worth the, the chance give me some money let me go try it maybe maybe we can find something a cheaper route maybe we can invent a new medicine maybe we can find you know whatever it happens to be there's different motivations throughout history not always good motivations right for exploration the, the you know city of gold or whatever right at, at different times but for me at least personally and i think for tom vice and our company the intent is to try to make life better here on Earth by what we go to low Earth orbit to do. And a lot of that, in my opinion, has to do with research related to uh, medicines, to cures for different diseases, to stem cell research, to manufacturing materials with lower defects, and then bring those things back home to really help us here. There's nothing out there that's green or blue except us. So right now, even though I fully support exploration of the moon and Mars, and and we don't want to be a one-planet species right now. This is by far the best place in the world to be, in the universe to be, Uh, and so we do have to take care of it and ourselves here. We do. We can't take it for granted. There's no other way to describe it. I've been reading a lot about what miners are doing to the reefs in Indonesia, and it's sad. All the nickel runoff. It's these are some of the world's most pristine beaches. I'm a surfer. They're some of the world's most pristine surf spots. Why Why ruin it? And that's, it's sad that we sit there and we take this beautiful nature for granted. We have to protect it. And as you're in low orbit, do you see one of the research being the primary driver for this? And we're maybe perhaps we'll have that big breakthrough and then we can work our way into, into deeper space? Personally, yes, I do think so, because you know, I'm a scientist by trade. I have a degree in chemistry, so I, and I'm a, I'm a huge environmentalist, so I truly want to 
be able to protect this planet. And I think space gives us a perspective that we don't have from the ground. I, you know, another analogy, I like analogy, so excuse me, but little anthills, right? There's an anthill here and an anthill here. This guy only knows his little surrounding. This guy knows his surrounding. They meet each other, but this is their whole world. They don't know about the rest of the world. Until you get away from your home, until you travel away from your state, until you travel away from your country, you're really pretty much isolated and only know what you're told. Once you go out and explore the world, explore other countries, make opinions of your own based on what you see with your own eyes, you have a whole different perspective of people, cultures, um, you know, your eyes are opened up. It's the same thing when people go to space. When you get up that high and you have a world perspective of the earth, you can see things that you've heard about, but they, didn't, they weren't really real to you. Like, for instance, the Amazon and the deforestation of the Amazon. You actually see that when you're in space. You see vast, vast areas of the jungle that has been logged and it's not a jungle anymore. You can see the patterns of the logging and, and the runoff into the Amazon and then the Amazon just belching topsoil into the ocean. That can never ever be returned to the land, right? It's lost forever. Madagascar is just, it's tragic what has happened to that that island based on over logging, the whole island's devastated. So when you see it for yourself, your eyes are open and you go, oh my gosh, I understand now what the issue is. I understand the problem. You can see the pollution. Uh, you can see how little green there is actually on the planet, how few forests there are left. Uh, and of course, again, if you're a scientist, you know that plant, vegetation, trees filter out carbon dioxide, um, store carbon dioxide and give us oxygen. We're eliminating, you know, that vegetation that provides life to us, you know, the people that use and the animals that use the oxygen. So it becomes much more apparent and, I don't know, much more urgent, I think, when you see it yourself. Does space change you? I, I, I can't say it. It didn't. It absolutely had to have. I couldn't tell you immediately, other than what you just heard. It makes you want to care for your planet. It makes you want to take care of people. It makes you realize how small we are in, in the big picture. We hear that all the time. We're very small in the big picture, but you actually see that from there. And even though we're only 200 miles up or 250 miles up, um, it's, it gives you a perspective they just don't have from being down here on the earth. And so some people say it gives them religion. Some people say it takes away their religion. For me, it just puts everything in perspective. You know, we are only here for a, a small period of time. We have a choice to make that limited time useful or not useful and use it for good or not. And I definitely want to use it for good. Everyone that has ever lived, ever been alive, is on that ball that you see when you're in space. And you know this is all there is for, for humanity, at least, right? And so uh, taking care of that is our paramount purpose. I know, I know it's not practical. It would never happen. But if you're an elected world official, you should go to space for a couple of days. Your perspective would change. I think uh, a good week in space with a, with a few certain leaders would, would not do any harm be helpful maybe we can actually have dialogue again 
NASA, where you spent 19 years, does a wonderful job of inspiring young children. You have the Kennedy Space Center with all the interactive exhibits. You have Ames out in California. You have all these interactive things. And you have the National Geographic photos. You have all the great programming. Kids are inspired by this. You were inspired by space. And in 2019, you were inducted into the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame. What did that moment mean to you? Oh, uh, that was an honor that's just hard to describe. When I started, I was inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. That was a real inspirational moment. I, I didn't even think about that. I had passed that Hall of Fame so many times driving into the Kennedy Space Center and thinking, oh, that's, that's for other astronauts, people who went out and did really important things after their careers. I will never you know, be inducted into that. You know, for, for an astronaut, that's like the Academy Awards, you know. And uh, But then when I got the call and I was told that I was had been selected, it was it was very cool. And um, there's only two to three people a year that get inducted. You, you do have to continue your career after NASA in the space field and contribute to space in some way. And I hadn't even thought about it, you know, having been out of the office that long. I was actually at NASA for 25 years and, and finally retired from them in 2019, um, and and that was the year I was inducted. So it was a great honor. In 2019, you joined Sierra Space, but before we get to Sierra Space, I have, I have a young daughter, and she'd love for me to ask you, what is it like to be an astronaut? Oh, gosh, there's so many answers to, to that question. It's an honor, first and foremost, because you are selected to be a representative of your country to... Um, you know, in some ways, put your life on the line for a cause you believe in very much, because it is a hazardous um, endeavor. But still, to be selected among the, the thousands and thousands of people that apply makes you feel that all that education, all that studying, all that homework that you did to get yourself to a point where you could be competitive, it was all worth it. It really paints a very promising career for you, even if you don't aren't selected to be an astronaut, to be anywhere around space flight and putting humans in space is exciting, I think. The actual opportunity to view the the world from space, incomparable. You know, that, that experience is amazing. Floating in space, being able to look at your crewmates upside down, pass food back and forth, do work in any orientation, not even think about it. That's That's awesome. There are also some of the less glamorous things that, that people don't know about. You know, the personal hygiene in space is, is not as convenient as here. There are no showers and, and there's no flushable toilets and things like that. So in that respect, it's more of camping, but camping with, you know, no gravity. Uh, but still, you know, it's just an incredible opportunity. And I would highly recommend it to at least anyone who's adventurous. For our young listeners, study hard, and one day perhaps you could be an astronaut too. What is, what was the feeling of weightlessness? How would you describe that? The closest thing I can come to is if you're in a swimming pool and you um, and you let yourself sink, not to the point where you touch the bottom of the pool and not where you're floating, but you can let out just enough air where you can suspend yourself in the water and just hang there. That's what it feels like to be weightless. The advantage of weightlessness, though, is that, you know, water doesn't get in your ears. You don't have to hold your breath. Um, <laughs> and you're not wet. But if you go scuba diving, minus all the equipment, and you have the freedom to go up and down and back and forth, that's also something similar. But, you know, great views underwater. Um, but 
still not quite the same thing as uh, as the Beacon space. That's fantastic. I like the analogy to scuba diving. I remember the first time I went and I'm going over a coral reef and how magical and you're seeing all these fish around you. It's that magical experience. You have this incredible run at NASA. The world's your oyster. You decided to join Sierra Space. Why did you choose Sierra Space? Because they had a space plane. That's the the simple answer. I um, I love the space shuttle. I joke that I'm a, a shuttle hugger. I um, was very sad. I know that we had to retire the shuttle to keep moving forward, but I I wish we could have delayed the the retirement until we could launch from U.S. soil again. Our partnership with Russia to get us the International Space Station worked, but it wasn't ideal. I just love the ability to come back and land on a runway. I think as a scientist again. Uh, having other scientists tell me how much it means to them to be able to bring back their delicate payloads, their delicate experiments back, their protein crystals that are smashed if they land uh, on impact in the water or on land, uh, we can glide them back down to a runway like the shuttle did. And so we are re-enabling a lot of science that wasn't hasn't been possible for the last, you know, since 2011, over a decade. So they are excited. I'm excited for that. And I'm very excited to put people back in space and bring them back to a runway. Runway. Will that be the famous runways we all see from Childs of the shuttles landing? Will your dream chaser vehicle land on those same famous runways? They will. Yes. It's the, was formerly called the shuttle landing facility because it was only used by the space shuttle, but uh, NASA renamed it to the launch and landing facility. Although right now there's no launches at the runway. <clears throat> but we will definitely take advantage of that runway, plus others worldwide. So we already uh, have received inquiries from other countries. We already have an agreement with Cornwall, and we are working at other locations around the world to create partnerships. I mean, I mean all over the world. It is possible to land the spacecraft on any runway that you could land a 737 on. So that's many, many thousands of runways worldwide. And then we can ferry it back home after we land. So say a country who's never had the opportunity to fly in space before, pick Australian. I was just talking to them yesterday. So they're very interested in flying Australian astronauts on a mission to space and landing them back in Australia, bringing their you know payloads back, their science and they haven't had the opportunity. They've been very involved in space for decades, but never have had the opportunity to fly. And and that's something they're very interested in. So that's a discriminator that I'm very proud of. It's a sense of national pride for the Australians. They could take off on their own soil, land on their own soil. That's a sense of pride. It is for every country that we've talked to. You know, the same with Japan. Japan is a partner, but they really would love to launch and land in their country. Um, many, many countries are very interested in that. Uh, flying, you know, their astronauts on a chartered vehicle, at least, you know, location and space to do research and then bring them back home to their home country. It's a, it is a very symbolic thing and, you know, kind of a, a space status, right? If your country flies in space, you're pretty much in, in the first world kind of category. And, um, and that's good for business in many ways. It's very good for business. It's healthy for those economies because they can build other, you have all the support industries that go along with the space industry. We we saw it, I live in Florida and I saw what happened at Cape Canaveral. Now Cape Canaveral's booming and, and industry is coming back there. The vehicle that Sierra Space has is the Dream Chaser. 
How would you describe that vehicle to our listeners? Okay, so the best way, easiest way is to picture the space shuttle and then just shrink it. It's uh, black and white like the space shuttle, has wings like the space shuttle. It's a little bit different shape. It's, it's called a lifting body design, so the wings are tilted up a little bit rather than, than flat. But it's a design that's been around for a long time. It's very stable on entry and can be managed thermally so that you don't overheat the vehicle. Gosh, it, it, the design started way back in the 60s, I believe, if not earlier. It was adopted by the Russians. The U.S. saw what the Russians had flown, went to, to the ocean. It's called the Bore 4. It, photos were taken of it, shown to NASA, asking, what, what is this vehicle? NASA back-engineered it, came up with the design that eventually became the Dream Chaser. So it's been around for decades, but we're going to actually launch it into space for the first time. So that is the coolest part, and we're getting ready to do that. The first vehicle is almost built. Uh, it will go through uh, its testing at the Glenn Research Center in Ohio at the Neil Armstrong Test Facility, and then it will ship here to Florida where we will launch it. How will you launch your vehicle into space? We are partnered with United Launch Alliance. So we'll be launching on ULA's Vulcan rocket. We will be on their second Vulcan mission, and it will be our first flight to space. The Dream Chaser is going to operate without a crew. You're going to deliver cargo without a crew. Right. Technologically, is it going to be fully autonomous? What is that going to look like? It is fully autonomous, very similar to the way cargo has been going to the space station for a long time. After we launch on the ULA rocket, we will rendezvous with the International Space Station, where we will be uh, approached by the robotic arm, connected to our vehicle, and then we'll be berthed with the International Space Station. Once we're berthed, the astronauts will be able to open the hatch and take out all the containments inside. Once it's completely empty, it will stay attached for a period of time. Uh, and then the crew will then put back experiments and science that should come back, back home to the scientists. They will put that in the actual dream chaser part, the, the space plane part of the vehicle. They will put trash in the aft end of the vehicle. Uh, there's a cargo module that's attached to the aft end of the Dream Chaser. And then once it separates from the space station, the cargo module separates from the Dream Chaser. The cargo module will burn up in the atmosphere. The Dream Chaser will come back to Florida and land on that shuttle landing facility. It's a proud moment for the team at Space Florida. It's a proud moment for the state of Florida. Are the Dream Chaser vehicles reusable? Will you be able to launch them multiple times? Absolutely, yes. There, I am hoping that we'll be able to launch them as many times as we launched the space shuttle. So maybe in the the thirty to forty range. But initially, we're we're hoping to we're we're asking for fifteen um, uses out of one vehicle. So after we fly our first one, we get it back. We'll do a lot of analysis on damage that was done to it thermally on uh, any issues with propellants and tanks and valves and everything that you check out on a vehicle after its first flight, look for weaknesses, redesign things that are not you know perfect, put those back in the second vehicle and then try it again. And then we'll keep doing that until we get a very clean, pristine vehicle back time after time. And then that design we hope will be the design that endures. Looking into the future, will you eventually launch humans into space using the Dream Chaser vehicle? We will. It may be slightly modified for humans because right now the cargo module, while it does have some life support, 
it's only really life support for the sort of say rodents and insects that may be going up to space for certain types of research but not enough to carry multiple humans. So we will modify the environmental life support systems to be capable of providing oxygen and cooling uh, for six people. We will provide crew displays. We will, of course, have to provide seats and suits for those inhabitants. So certain necessary modifications will be done. The actual uh, approach to dock and landing, all of that will have been prepared ahead of time for the cargo module. The only other additional, not the only, but another additional important change is that we do have to be able to abort off of the rocket uh, in the event of a a, a, catastrophic event. If something were to happen to the rocket, our vehicle would separate from that rocket and then come back and land on the runway. So doing that is something we have to demonstrate before we could ever go to, say, the International Space Station. The International Space Station, from a cargo perspective, you're going there in 2023 through a relationship with NASA. Did that relationship evolve with your deep experience at NASA? Actually, we already had uh, the contract with NASA before my arrival at Sierra Space. And at the time I came to to Sierra, it was the Sierra Nevada Corporation. We carved out and, and generated Sierra Space after about uh, a year and a half after I was at Sierra Nevada Corporation. So we took all the space out of Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada still exists, uh, still owned by its original owners, and uh, still does its primary mission. The space mission became so large um, that we decided to to carve that part out and then create a more uh, traditional CEO, president, and um, executive leadership team structure, and then go out and do a monetary raise. So the monetary raise was incredibly successful, just demonstrating the amount of support that people have for this commercial space uh, endeavor. People really see a future here. And so um, that's that's how it evolved over time. I want to add some economic context to commercial space. The, the space foundations value the space economy at over $500 billion. What percentage of that is cargo delivery? Is that a very large percentage of the cargo that goes to and from space? I would say it depends on how you define the cargo. So Cargo to the International Space Station, I would say no. The, the International Space Station is, you know, limited in life right now. The life that we are predicting it will have is 2030. That's the official date that NASA has extended the life of ISS. ISS stands for International Space Station. Uh, after that point in time, we need to have a commercial space station up and running. And so we are partnered with Blue Origin uh, on a project called Orbital Reef. And in that a compilation of uh, our spacecraft and their spacecraft. We're building a commercial station that will support everything from basic research to actual manufacturing in space to um, hospitality type activities and even perhaps movies made in microgravity. They will provide a rocket called New Glenn, a, the, a very large rocket with a seven meter uh, diameter fairing. We can fly on that rocket. We have an inflatable habitat and laboratory that we can put up in space that's called life and we will put those attach those to blue origin hardware and uh, we're equal partners in that endeavor so that the new business park in space that is really the next economy that is where everything is going to get done that's where all the new products will be made the research will be done the you know the tourism will be done 
And that's where a lot of this, um, you know, next generation of marketability happens, in my opinion. There's still the defense side as well, which can't be ignored. And when people say, why do we need to do this? We know that if we Americans don't do this, other countries are doing it already and will be doing it. And and personally, it's very important for for me that we as a country lead in space, continue to lead in space, because I believe we're there for the right reasons to make it a, a free economy for all, to make it accessible to all, to all countries. And I don't I don't want to see a future in space where we are restricted from what can be done up there. So that's part of why we're in the game and where I think the economy will grow in space. America has to lead on space. America has to usher in the space economy. I like film. You mentioned film. There's the rumors going around Hollywood that Tom Cruise is trying to film on the International Space Station. That's a big moment for space. I think it's a, it's a, it creates a, a very big economic opportunity down the line for space stations. I'm sitting here thinking, I have pictures of the International Space Station in my head. I'm like, okay, how do you launch an, 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 a space station? Does it go in parts and it's very similar to kids' Legos? You you connect the Lego pieces in space. How do you launch a space station? Yeah, so with the, I was actually on a space station mission where we launched a component that's on the International Space Station today. That was the airlock, and that's where people go into depress it and go out and do spacewalk. So you do launch them segment by segment. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you have a very large rocket, you can launch components on ULA, you can launch uh, parts of it on you know, Blue Origin's New Glenn. There are multiple rockets around the world that can um, put parts and components up in the International Space Station. So that's what we will be doing. We'll be uh, taking other interested parties who want to be part of this endeavor and and they can be part of our launch process. They can bring their own components to, to the space station. And yes, so Blue Origin is creating this central core module that will have a lot of windows that always look down at the earth. And then we will plug the life habitat and the life um, research modules into the sides of, of that uh, core module. Uh, Blue Origin is providing the power stack uh, again, we're providing Dream Chaser for crew and cargo. We have other partners as part of this endeavor, but um, we're the two principal partners leading this. It's a real-life Lego set. <laughs> it's great. It's it is. awesome. It is. And, and the cool part about this, uh, with life especially, it is an inflatable, and Legos can't do this yet. But once you, you, you launch it deflated, so it's kind of just, uh, it's kind of like a deflated football, if you can think about it that way. You know, it, it can, it's flexible and you can fold it up. But then when you inflate it, it's its full size and it's very rigid. Uh, it's the same way with the life module. Once it gets on orbit, we inflate it. So you can launch a small, you know, launch it in a small area, a five or seven meter fairing. Once the fairing is released, you get it up on orbit you inflate it and then it's this, you know, 30 foot across three story facility that you've got from one launch. And each one of these life habitats is about a quarter of the volume that's already on the International Space Station today. So, you know, the International Space Station took, you know, dozens of launches to build the whole thing. You can create the same volume in four to five launches, not completely outfitted. But it, you know, create the volume that you can then go output and put laboratory space and manufacturing capability, those movie studios and things like that, and the hoteling up there. So it brings down the cost of launch because you get more per launch. Uh, the reusability of the vehicles, reusability of the uh, of the rockets, 
all that is bringing space flight costs down so that more and more people will be able to afford to go up there and do their work in space. How do you inflate it? Is there a special NASA engineered pump? Football, you you pump the air into it, then you can play football in the backyard with the friends and family. But how do you inflate in space? It's pressurized gases that you take up and pressurized. That's the way we take all of our, you know, breathing gases up there as well. You know, the hydrogen or I'm sorry, the oxygen and the nitrogen that you use for breathing gases, they're all in compressed tank. And then when you release that, uh, it, it inflates the module. You mentioned hotels in space, and let's leave Hal out of this, but Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hal doesn't exist in this version. It's beautiful. They had the restaurant, the hotel. Is that something that you see coming in the future where there is a space hotel where it becomes a, a tourist destination? I do, actually. I, I, uh, I know this is a passion of Jeff Bezos. So for Blue Origin, their participation in Orbital Reef will be heavily geared towards that um, tourist opportunity. We can support, of course, multiple people in our life. So we plan to have all of the habitation, the actual living quarters in these inflatables. We will have private compartments where people can live and their hygiene compartments close by. Uh, and then we'll have, I wouldn't necessarily call them cafeterias because, you know, there's limited space, but there will be eating areas where people can socialize and eat together, uh, make their food and um, clean up in that environment. We'll have exercise equipment because we already know that it's very important for people to exercise in space. It keeps your bone density good. And without exercise, your bones can lose calcium pretty quickly. So we'll have the capability for people to exercise and keep weight on their legs, which is very important. We'll have a medical staff up there to take care of people if they get injured or or sick up there. Very low likelihood they're going to get sick because we quarantine people before they launch, but just in case, we'll have a medical staff up there as well. So it should be pretty comfortable. Uh, They'll have a great view, and we'll give them the choices of food they want to take up. It's kind of like I mentioned earlier, it's camping in space, so you won't get a hot tub uh, or a hot bath, but as long as we set expectations of what's possible in microgravity, uh, I think people are going to have a great time. Oh, it's fun. Sign me up. I'm ready to go pay the deposit and go on the wait list. Sign me up. Space is a very large environment. It can go, you have the Milky Way, you have all the way out to to Pluto. Sierra Space is focused on the low low Earth orbit market. Why? Because it's relatively easy to get to and close to home. So the advantages are uh, you can get to a space station and rendezvous and dock within about four hours from launching off the ground uh, and to be on a space station about that period of time to go. And it provides a microgravity environment. So that's the advantage of being in low Earth orbit. You're essentially in free fall around the Earth all the time, which simulates microgravity. But you, you feel like you're floating up there. And that provides advantages for researchers who want to um, study the effects of microgravity on, you know, cancer cells and things like that. Actually, it's how tumors grow in space that makes it valuable. They grow in space like they do in your body. So we don't want to, you know, grow tumors in people's bodies, not not the great idea, but we can grow them in space, design, you know, drugs to attack those tumors and, and then bring that technology back to the ground. If you were to go deeper in space, it takes a lot more time, it takes a lot more propulsion, and it exposes people to a lot more radiation the deeper you go in space, and um, just from your travel time. 
So being in low Earth orbit is the quickest, cheapest, and safest place to be to achieve the same goal of the of the deeper exploration. You can go from launch to space station in four hours. Today, you can't even go from New York to Los Angeles in four hours. It's five hours and 55 minutes. You can't even go from New York to London in that time. When we had the Concorde, you could. But this is incredible. Think about that. Well, let's go to L. We live in New York. Let's go to L.A. for the weekend. Well, let's go to space. It's faster. It's great. So we don't. We have young kids. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> you eliminate that. You're getting there very quickly. Sierra Space, you're helping to usher in the orbital age. I like that. How do you define the orbital age? Again, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier. We talked about that next phase of human evolution when we, we migrated from you know the European continent and the Asian continent across the ocean to the Americas. This is the next stage, right? We pretty much used up not all, but most of the habitable area on the planet Earth, and we've not done it any favors in some cases. So the next space available is space it's off the planet it's hard to pollute we can take some of the manufacturing up there that we don't necessarily want to do on the planet down here and automated systems in north orbit we you know can't endanger the planet that way uh, the the biggest danger is you know the deorbiting of the vehicles after we use them we want to make sure that anything we put up we can safely bring down uh, we're working on technologies that will allow us to bring down large segments of spacecraft and bring it back onto the surface uh, safely. For components that don't need to come back, don't need to be reused, we can deorbit them in a way that puts them into the ocean and doesn't endanger anybody that way as well. So there are all kinds of ways that we're trying to protect people on Earth, but make access to space faster, easier, cheaper and to do production up there that we don't necessarily want to do down here, or that it's only enabled up there. And then I think by virtue of having that work up in space, we will have people living in space longer and longer periods of time. So initially, it might you might think about it, the people who do research on the South Pole, and they go off on an expedition, they go to the South Pole, and they're kind of in that same camp mode, and they have to be adventurous people, but they do a lot of research down there. Over periods of time, you know, the things that used to be very remote and very difficult to get, get get to have become more and more accessible, and that's how space will be. So uh, while only a few people go to certain places or have in the past, think of the wagon trains, right, going across the country. Eventually, you know, we're, California is full of people. <laughs> so, you know, we, we find a way to get there. We find things to do in new locations. We find new ways to live in new locations. And I guess the one thing I cannot predict is that that thing that will be developed that we don't know about yet, but we know something will. As um, you know, 50 years ago, who who could have predicted what cell phones would be today? Right? Think about computers and what they used to be, and how many how many rooms it took to put a computer in a in NASA. Remember, if you uh, if you saw uh, some of the old movies about about NASA's computers, the very first IBM's, and now a handheld phone has so much more computing power than the room full of computers. And we can't live without it. We can't even imagine life without it. I know our kids don't know. Our life. <laughs> so, and that's happened just in the last couple of decades. Just think what will happen. We just don't know what it is yet. Maybe it's cures. Maybe it's, 
maybe it's a new technology, maybe it's new ways of um, communications. We we don't know, but we know it will happen, and we know it will be life changing. It will be life changing. First time I visited Antarctica, that was a life changing moment. When you're when you're seeing those glaciers, as that profound effect when you're going out of Ushuaia, Argentina, down down to the South Pole, it has that effect on you, and it's something that you will never forget. And the researchers that live in the South Pole and conduct the research, they have to go through a lot of hardships. You can't have it. You have to have your appendix removed to live there because they're there for long periods of time. So they go through a lot of health conditions to be able to live there. They can live there for only a certain amount of time because of the mental aspect that it takes on them. From a physical standpoint, how long can a human live in space? Is there a point where medical doctors say, no more, you have to come come back down? Is there a, have we've gotten to that research yet? Yeah, there's been... A lot of research done on our NASA astronauts over the past few decades. We have had people that have stayed up for over a year at a time. And cumulatively, I, th- I think the Russians still hold that record for, you know, it's over two years, maybe closer to three total. The problem is, and, and you bring up a good point, eventually you are exposed to enough radiation where you uh, exceed the OSHA limits on radiation exposure. So that's really our primary limiter right now, other than some other physical issues that I can describe. But but primarily the biggest danger is the radiation. And so we try to keep people below the OSHA limits still. Now, if we're going to go live on the moon or Mars, we will exceed those OSHA limits because the transportation time to those planets and the lack of an atmosphere to help shield you will cause us to exceed those limits. But in low Earth orbit, we can manage that. The other things I mentioned uh, health-wise are bone density. So you really want to exercise every day to keep your bone density up, especially in your lower torso. Uh, Another interesting thing that happens is the fluid shift from, like when I'm sitting here today, you're standing up. Your blood and the fluids in your body um, are distributed heavily towards your lower torso. When you go into space, there's no gravity to pull that down. So it re-equilibrates through your whole body. So you have just as much pressure in your brain as you do in your feet. So your legs get skinnier and your brain feels like it's going to explode. <laughs> so, And you feel like your eyes are going to pop out. It, it lasts for a short period of time, like a day or two. But your body then goes, oh, my gosh, I have way too much fluid in my head. Uh, and then it and triggers your body to get rid of that fluid. And then you really re-equilibrate to a point where your body's happy. The long-term effects can be that, you know, it squeezes the optic nerve in your in your eyes and it can cause vision blurriness. Uh, So we're working on uh, resolving that. That's typically a short-term effect. It returns back to normal after you come back to the ground. The things that are lasting are the radiation and the bone density loss if you don't take care of that proactively. Very, very interesting. In your opinion, what is the future of space? I don't have that crystal ball. I know it's going to be big. I know that if we don't do it, somebody will. I know I know that we're going to develop some really cool drugs. Um, another really cool research effort that I love is all the research done on stem cells, uh, where we're learning that we can uh, regenerate cells in our bodies, bring them back to a more youthful state. We can grow organs from stem cells. We can probably create organs in space that you can't grow on the ground because gravity doesn't allow them to form properly. But we think we might be able to do that in microgravity. So you wouldn't have to uh, wait for a donor if you had a kidney failure or you know a liver failure. You could take your stem cells up there and, and have your own organs grown. That would be a huge um, win, in my opinion. 
So all those things that will become possible are part of the future of space. I think humans living off of the planet for long periods of time as part of a normal life will be part of a, a, a future normal where, like you mentioned, instead of commuting, I, I'm going to go to Paris for a meeting or a conference. I'm going to go to the space station for a conference. I'm going to Orbital Reef to do my stem cell research for the next six months. I think that will be the new normal of space. The future you described in space, it's possible, it's coming, it's happening. And as we look to wrap up this super insightful conversation, thank you for giving a masterclass on all things space. What would you like our listeners to take away with them today? I would say, please um, think about space as the next new normal. It's not just science fiction anymore. You know, people think about Star Wars and uh, one of the most common questions I get is, you know, how many planets have you been to? It's still just the one. It's the one that everyone has been to, but we can make use of space in a way that's, you know, doesn't really require a lot of aliens and, and Star Wars kinds of things in conflict. We can use space in a very uh, constructive way, a very practical way, and it, it is to be used in a way that makes life better here for us on the home planet of Earth. So that is our objective, and that's what I hope to see in the future of space. Space is no longer science fiction. Space is the future. Space is wonderful. Because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is Sierra Space. Dr. Gavandi, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when we speak with Johannes Lieben, Head of Business Development Smart Farming at DIN, the German Institute for Standardization. Johannes will talk about smart farming, the latest technology of sustainable farming, and the future of green agriculture. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.